Alright, Habakkuk chapter number 1, verse number 1 begins this way. It says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out of the, unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slack, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Now as we move through the text tonight in, in, the, uh, in the lesson, we'll find that Habakkuk chapter 1 basically divides itself into three portions. The first we have just read, the first four verses. And this is Habakkuk's complaint before God. Uh, the next from verse 5 down to verse number 11 is God's answer to Habakkuk. And he explains, he, he explains what God's going to do about unrighteousness in the land of Judah. However, there are some troubling aspects to God's answer. And so we find a reply from Habakkuk down in verse number 12 to verse number 17. In other words, he asks God, he cries out, Lord, why is this happening? God gives him an answer. We'll talk about it shortly, but essentially God says, I'm going to send the Chaldeans to judge you. Uh, But that then presents its own problems that have to be addressed. Uh, And so uh, the reply from Habakkuk comes forth in the latter portion of the chapter. I will admit to you that when you come to the end of chapter number 1, it's a bit of a cliffhanger. It ends with, and, and I hate to use this language, but I'm going to, an accusation from Habakkuk towards God. Essentially, Habakkuk saying, Lord, the answer you gave me is not much of an answer, and I'm going to have to have more clarification. So there's not really a resolution uh, to chapter number 1. That comes in chapter number 2. For the sake of those that this might be your first week, uh, we are essentially looking at the book of Habakkuk in its three chapters. In the first one, uh, we find that uh, the prophet is troubled. He is troubled. He is bothered by what he sees when he looks around uh, at the world around him. In chapter number 2, we find he is tested. God gives an answer to which Habakkuk is to reply in faith. And he does. God gives him victory in the midst of his uh, trial and trouble. And then in chapter number 3, we find that the prophet is triumphant. So that's how we're going to look at these uh, portions of Scripture. I want to read to you a quote tonight before we begin with the exposition of the text. Men of faith are always the men who have to confront problems. G. Campbell Morgan said that. Men of faith are always the men who have to confront problems. If you believe in God, you sometimes wonder why He allows certain things to happen. But keep in mind that there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Like Habakkuk, the doubter questions God, may even debate with God, but the doubter doesn't abandon God. Unbelief, however, is rebellion against God, a refusal to accept what he says and what he does. Unbelief is an act of the will, while doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. I think one of the best ways that I heard it explained to me one time, somebody made a comment to a man that had experienced a great tragedy and, uh, and, and made this statement and said, it's okay to question God as long as we don't criticize God. In other words, it's okay to ask, just don't accuse. It's okay to, to marvel, but don't malign God. 
You see, I, I think that we have conditioned ourselves in this day of superficial Christianity that we live in. All Christianity today is a mile wide and a quarter inch deep. And in these days that we live in of Facebook Christianity, of, of what we might, and some of y'all might know what this means, you might not, but what we call mean Christianity. People whose religion is summed up just by floral pictures of verses quoted out of context. We've been conditioned to believe that struggling in understanding what God is doing is somehow sin. But here's the truth of the matter. Uh, Any clear-thinking person that takes God at His word concerning who He is will naturally wonder sometimes why the world looks like it does and why what happens happens the way it does. That was what Habakkuk struggled with. He knew who, who and what and how God was. He knew what God had said about Himself. And he believes that. If Habakkuk had not believed God, it would have been much easier for him to just sweep it under the rug, gloss it over, and move on. But it was just because he believed God to be as righteous, as holy, as sovereign, as powerful as God declares himself to be, that he struggled with the wicked world that he saw around him. He looked at God and he said, God, I know you are what you say you are. But then he looked at a world that was apparently, obviously, blatantly, brazenly wicked, And he said, God, I'm having trouble reconciling what I see around me with what I know about you. This was the heart of Habakkuk's conflict. And it is a great commendation to us. And we'll say more about it, particularly in chapter number 2. But it's a great commendation and commentary of his faith that he did come to God about this. Very often when people struggle with the wickedness of the world, their answer is merely to just close their eyes, ignore it, pretend like it's not the case. But Habakkuk trusted God enough that he came to him and said, Lord, I'm bothered by this, and I need some wisdom, and I need some peace for what I see around me. So as we look at our notes, we'll find that the first section that we've read, we could put it under this heading, the crimes of Judah. Later on, uh, Habakkuk's going to talk about what he knows of the Chaldean nation, the Babylonians, and, and his problem with that. But he begins by criticizing the wickedness of society around him. It's first defined and, and designated by personal sorrow. It says, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. You know, sometimes we get so used to in reading the Word of God, we don't read it, we read past it. But you know, most of the Old Testament prophets did not begin with that phrase, a burden. Rather, most of them it would say the word of the Lord that came unto so-and-so or the vision which so-and-so did see. But the Holy Ghost, knowing the content and character of Habakkuk's vision and his prophecy, used that word burden because it describes what Habakkuk was dealing with. You know, it's not always pleasant when God deals with us. Now, it always afterward yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. But it's not always pleasant when God deals with us. There's going to be times that the Lord's going to give you some bitter water to drink. There's going to be times that the Lord's going to give you some battles and struggles to have to contend with. There's going to be times, though we are confident in the Lord, that we're confused in our circumstance. And so that word burden is fitting there, and it describes the sorrow which Habakkuk was experiencing. Now, what was the question, or what was the content of that sorrow? He asked this question in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Habakkuk was a man of prayer. Naturally burdened by the wickedness of the society that he was living in, he had taken that burden to the Lord in prayer and asked God to intervene. I, I want to be careful with, with how in the teaching of this, I don't want to misconvey some things. Uh, you say, preacher, what can we do about our society? Well, we can stay faithful to God and we can pray. We can trust the Lord, but we can pray and seek God's intervention in the wickedness of society around us. 
But can I remind you that God has a timetable and a plan and a path that this world is marching along that all of your prayers and all of my prayers will not deviate God's plan from. We can pray that the world's going to get better and better, but my Bible still says evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. Habakkuk was praying for things that undoubtedly were the unmitigated desire of God, though they may have not been the will of God at that time in the nation. He had every reason to believe God would answer. And yet as he cried, God remained silent. We made comment last week of of Habakkuk's theological understanding of God and how uh, he could have been right there with Job's friends in the midst of Job's calamity, who gave this simple, wrapped up, packaged with a bow on it concept of how God works in the world and tried to uh, oversimplify what Job was experiencing and simply say, Job, just cry out to God, listen to God, hear God. But Job's problem was the same that Habakkuk's was. God seemed to be silent. Habakkuk's problem was not that God was not listening. His problem was that it seemed as though God was not answering. I do not think when he says, Thou wilt not hear, he's implying that God is deaf to what he's experiencing. If he believed God wasn't hearing, he wouldn't have said anything at all. But rather than in praying and seeking God's intervention in the wickedness of society, it seemed as though God was silent, as though he was not answering, he was not replying, he was not intervening. In fact, I would venture this, Habakkuk's experiencing something that a lot of us are experiencing in these days. We're looking at a world that's on fire around us where wickedness is unchecked, where corruption and vileness is, is not only tolerated, but it's exalted and applauded. And we wonder the same thing that Habakkuk did. Lord, how long are you going to be silent about this? It was once said that if God tolerates America any longer, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know, we've been saying that for 40, 50 years, haven't we? Every single day, uh, there are hundreds, thousands actually, of unborn children that are murdered in this country. Uh, and they're, they're not fetuses, they're children, they're lives. Uh, and and they're, not, they're not merely aborted, but they are murdered uh, in this country. How can God tolerate that? Uh, we look at a society where anything that is righteous is criminalized and maligned. We're told constantly that the problem of our society is all these Christians and all these Bible believers and all these people with morals... And if we just had less morals, we would be more righteous. And yet we have been on a path of less decreasing morals for 60 years in this country. And things have not gotten better, but they have only gotten worse. How long is God going to tolerate it? You know, sometimes, and I think this is a pertinent thing for us, what's going on in a nation can affect what's going on in the heart of a believer. Do you believe that over the past few months? I believe that. I've watched God's people go from uh, on the precipice of thinking the millennial reign was about to be ushered in uh, to just a few weeks later thinking that God fell off his throne and everything's gone to pieces. And there is a tension and there is a stress that is present in society today, and we see it amongst God's people as well, that is directly tied to the condition of our nation and the direction that our country is going. You're not alone if you feel that way. Uh, You're not the first if you feel that way. Habakkuk himself was struggling in that same way. He was troubled because wickedness seemed to go unchecked. Notice what he says in verse number 2. He says, "We, We cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. 
I really, and, I, and I'm not trying to center God's Word on, on our nation, but I do live in our nation, and, and it's relevant to me as an American looking at our society, and I almost couldn't find a more fit description of our country than is contained in those words. He talks about violence, and God will not save. I was, and I won't go deep into it, but I was watching a video of uh, two young ladies tried to steal a man's car in, I believe it was Washington, D.C., and took off, and uh, he was killed in the interaction. One of the major cable news networks got up and said it was an accident. It wasn't an accident, it was murder. They tried to carjack this man's car and, and take off, and because he wouldn't let go of the steering wheel, they dragged the man to his death, and he was left there laying on the side of the road. And I don't know what will happen to those young ladies, and it's a tragedy, uh, both that that man died and, too, that darkness resides in their hearts, that Christ could dissipate, that he could expel, uh, that that darkness is there. There's grace for them. God can save them. But what I'm saying is it seems increasingly every day there's violence on every hand. Uh, just the other day it was reported a young man went up and walked, uh, walked up, shot an 8th eight, grade girl uh, and killed her. Just a few months back, you probably remember a man walking up and shooting a 5-year-old child uh, over in one of the Carolinas. You might remember several months ago when a man, uh, darkness in his heart, derangement in his mind, picked up a 5-year-old boy and tossed him off the second story of a shopping mall. And uh, it seems like everywhere we look, violence is just unchecked. Uh, we say, preacher, it's never been like this before. Sure it has. Uh, we got the internet, we got Facebook, we can see it all, we got Twitter. The reality is this world has been this sinful. Man's heart has been this depraved. I'm not saying we are not on a downward decline, but I'm saying the thing causing that decline is no more wicked or dark than ever it has been. It has always lived within the human heart and the human condition. And what Habakkuk is crying about in chapter number 1 is similar to what you and I struggle with in these days. He says this, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. Now what does it mean to spoil something? Well, it means to ransack it, to pillage it. We could use that term, to loot it, uh, to go and by violence and force take something that is not your own. And then he says this, There are that raise up strife and contention. Uh, Make no doubt about it, division is a political weapon in the day that we live in. It's part of the reason uh, that isolation is uh, being pushed the way that it is. It's easier to divide people when they are isolated from one another. And we're seeing the fruit of that in our society today where people are only busted up into various interest groups with various identities and the basic humanity of man is being stripped away. You say, preacher, why is that? Because a divided people is an easier people to conquer. It's an easier people to conquer. And so we're living in a day when strife and contention is a, is a political weapon, but it's a way of life. Very often all you have to know about a person to know whether to hate them is to find out uh, what minute ways they might be different than yourself. And then all of a sudden uh, you're permitted to hate them and despise them and loathe them. Uh, this is not the first time that this has existed in society. Uh, this has always dwelt in the human heart. But notice verse 4 with me. This is of particular interest to me. It says, therefore, now because of all these things, because violence has gone unchecked, because spoiling, stealing, looting, people are allowed to take by violence and force that which is not theirs, because division, strife, contention is a way of life, because of all of that, therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. We see this personal sorrow and this perilous situation. But you know what that leads to? It leads to a permissive society. I thought about that phrase, the law is slack. 
You know, the image, of course, is of a rope uh, that is attached to some action or some will. You'd pull a rope and maybe a bell would ring or uh, maybe a, a door would open or whatever it might be. Uh, but the problem, it's not working because there's too much slack in the rope. And I thought about our justice system that we live in today. A justice system that though it is still the purest in the world, it is uh, progressively being degraded and corrupted by bureaucracy. Uh, we live in a day where uh, men that commit evil acts will go and will sit through an appeals process for 20 years until they die of natural causes and justice never brought forth. When there will be investigations of people that have hurt people and abused people, but it will be tied up and wrapped up in courts uh, for generations to come, and that person will never be held to account. One of the great examples of this, and I, maybe I'm about to get into deep water. If I am, pull your waders on. We'll go together. But uh, was what happened with our election this past year. We were told leading up to it by the Supreme Court that they could not rule on those election issues because it might sway the results of the election. They'd wait until after the election and then they'd settle it. Well, the election happened. It was a contested election and people said, we need answers, we need answers, we need to know what happened. And then they said, well, we can't rule on it right now because it would create too much conflict in society and it would undermine the legitimacy of whoever sat in the White House. And people said, well, okay, as long as it's dealt with. And then just a few weeks ago, uh, after the election was over and a president sitting in the White House, the Supreme Court once again declined to hear the election laws because they said, well, it's, a, it's moot now. There's no point in it now because it won't change anything. So before the election, we can't, re- we can't listen to those arguments because it might change something. After the election, we can't listen to those arguments because it ain't going to change anything. So what is that, preacher? That's slack in the rope. That's slack in the rope. What happens is it, it, it neuters uh, judgment and justice to such a degree that men cease to seek it. Because after all, what is the point? Uh, how often have you been in a scenario where you've been aggrieved or ill-treated and you've been told, well, file a complaint, file a report, take it up with so-and-so. And you said, well, why even bother? Nothing will be done about it in the first place. In other words, here's what they were saying. They were saying, well, there's the rope, just pull the rope. But the problem was there was slack in the rope. And you could pull that rope all you wanted, but it wasn't going to ring the bell in any way. Uh, Why does this happen in a society? Well, it's in a society where justice is degraded and it's made abstract and theoretic and it is reserved to only be the privilege of those that have the power to execute it through their own means. That's not how justice is supposed to be. Justice is supposed to be something that's made available uh, by people in power to people that do not have power so that they have a means of having their case heard and having justice brought forth. But that wasn't the case in, in Judah. The law was slack, and because of that, judgment never went forward. You could go, you could, you could make a complaint, you could make an appeal, but it really didn't matter in the first place. And here's why. Man, look at this. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous... Therefore, wrong judgment proceeded. In other words, here's maybe one way we could say it. The wicked outnumbered the righteous. The wicked outnumbered the righteous. I don't know if you're aware of it, and this is a hard truth to come to terms with, uh, but much that's wrong with society today is approved of by the majority of people. We're in that same situation. You know, it's all good to say row the boat, but if you've got people rowing you over a cliff, more people rowing that way than rowing this way, what good does rowing do anyway? And that's sort of the situation we find ourselves in today. I, I know we all like to believe maybe we've been so conditioned that we're the, the silent moral majority, but i got news for you. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. A lot of the wickedness in society today, uh, people don't just tolerate, they clap for it. It, it has popular support. 
And because wickedness is so prevalent, uh, wrong judgment proceeds. This is the reason the Bible says that when the wicked reign, the people mourn. Whenever public policy of a nation endorses unrighteousness, it grieves the people. And we're living in a society today where I hate to admit it to you, but we are increasingly, as God's people, becoming the minority. Maybe we, and surely we do bear blame in that. We, we, we should be better stewards of the gospel. But nevertheless, here we find ourselves in a scenario where wickedness is approved of, is endorsed, uh, is, is legislated all around us. And you say, preacher, it's awful. It's never been like this before. Well, the only problem with that is we're reading the heart of a man who was in a situation exactly like that. Exactly like that. Listen to this quote concerning these days. The Mosaic Law was the foundation of Jewish national life. When it says the law, by the way, it's not just talking about civil you know, precepts and statutes. It's talking about the law of God. I'd remind you that uh, during this time, the law of God had been completely forgotten. It wasn't until Josiah, uh, under his reign, that they found the book of the law in the temple. I mean, even that is, uh, what, what a chilling statement. They had, as a nation, lost the word of God. And they find it in the temple, and that's what spurs much of the Reformation under uh, Josiah's time. But when they talk about the law here, when Habakkuk mentions it, he's not just talking about civil precepts. He's talking about the law of God. The Mosaic law was the foundation of Jewish national life. But Habakkuk observed that the law is slackened, it's benumbed, it's paralyzed, and judgment doth never go forth. The Hezekiah revival had been followed by a half century of reaction and unbelievable wickedness during the dreadful days of Manasseh. During that time, the temple fell into disrepair. The law of God was set aside and every form of evil flourished. Society became so decadent that it permitted idolatry, immorality, and even accepted sodomy as a lifestyle. By the time Josiah came to the throne, the law of God had completely vanished. No one even had a copy of it. Then Josiah ordered the cleansing and renovation of the temple, and Hilkiah found a book of the law of the Lord. The finding of that copy of the law was what spurred King Josiah to intensify his efforts to reform Judah. However, the results of this of his reforms were not long-lasting. He was killed while he was a comparatively young man, and a counter-reformation followed, proving how little the revival had touched the conscience of the nation. The law always becomes paralyzed in a permissive society. As we can see by simply looking around our own land, a permissive society redefines sin. Today, a drunkard is an alcoholic. A thief is a kleptomaniac. A murderer is a victim of society. Adultery is merely having an affair. Sodomy is an alternate lifestyle. Sins that would have outraged our fathers are tolerated in the name of personal and civil rights. Today, the law is emasculated. Criminals are coddled. The death sentence has been abolished in many places. And judges slap repeat offenders on the wrist. Pleas of temporary insanity can absolve perpetrators from the penalties uh, of the most heinous of crimes. Uh, Hardened criminals can play the appeal system for years and escape with punishment far lighter than their deeds deserve. Court cases are deferred until the memories of witnesses become hazy. Judges are inconsistent, often open to bribes, and frequently more concerned with protecting, uh, protecting than punishing the guilty. The absolute standards of morality mandated by God's law have given place to relative morality, which accommodates wickedness. The wholesale slaughter of unborn babies by abortion is condoned on the grounds of a woman's right to choose. Pornography flourishes under the guise of freedom of the press. Syndicated crime, drug trafficking, prostitution, child abuse, political corruption, and blind foreign policy contribute to the growing moral weakness of the nation. Such is the permissive society that we see, and such was the permissive society that Habakkuk saw. 
He came to the conclusion that the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. In other words, the wicked outnumbered and outvoted the righteous. No wonder this nation was headed on a collision course with disaster. By the way, let me make this comment. We, we as a nation have followed a similar experience. Uh, I won't spend a bunch of time because I'm already late uh, in my teaching. I, I've got to hasten, but we had a lot of the same thing. You had uh, throughout after World War II, you had uh, everybody came home, had, families were reunited. You had the 1950s when, for the most part, society was somewhat moral in its bearings. Then came the sexual revolution of the 60s. You had uh, Marxism infiltrated and had already infiltrated higher academics and began to teach on mass our young people that all morality was relative, that there was no right, there was no wrong, that there wasn't really a God, that you just do whatever you want. And the swinging 60s helped lend that along. You come to the close of the 60s and you had in the 70s this push, political push, of the moral majority. And you had uh, a, a lot of... Uh, well, I'll say it this way, a lot of seemingly good things going on. You had big rallies where supposedly thousands and thousands of people were, were saved. You had churches growing, and, and the mega churches weren't the liberal churches. They were fundamental churches. They were churches that seemed to teach and preach the Word of God. But here's the problem. It all just floated along the surface. It didn't take root in the human heart. It wasn't something that was always foisted on. It wasn't nascent to society. And so what happened? Well, there's been since that time a counter-reformation that has taken place. We've gone just as far in the other direction as a result. It's exactly what happened in the nation of Judah. You say, well, preacher, you're condemning those people that work so hard to see those things happen. No, I believe Josiah was sincere in what he was doing. But you see, you cannot legislate righteousness. You can legislate unrighteousness, but righteousness comes from the human heart and the human condition yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the only answer, the answer is not lobbyists, the answer is not, and I'm not against petitions, I'm not against calling your congress, do it all you want, but that's not going to be what's going to change it. Revival is what's going to change it. The gospel is what's going to change it. God changes a man from the inside out, and God changes nations by changing men. God's going to have to save some people. And the church is going to have to get right with him if we're going to see revival happen. We followed a very similar path that they have, and today we find ourselves in the same situation. This is Habakkuk's great complaint to God. Well, what was God's reply to him? Verse number 5. The Bible says, Behold ye among the heathen. Now this is the Lord talking. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves, and their horsemen shall spread themselves, <coughs> excuse me, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the king, kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. So here comes the reply to Habakkuk. Um, I would have felt like Habakkuk did. I know I'm getting ahead in my teaching here, but Habakkuk ain't really satisfied with this answer. And if I'm being honest in my flesh, it ain't an answer I like either. 
Habakkuk says, Lord, why are you allowing all this wickedness? Don't you see how wicked this nation is? Everybody's so rotten. Everybody's so vile. God, why don't you do something about this? God says, well, hold on, Habakkuk. I am going to do something about it. I'm going to send the Babylonians. They're going to raise this land. They're going to scorch it to the ground. They're going to leave nothing behind them. And the judgment of God is going to pour forth His waters. And Habakkuk says, well, now, well, wait a minute, God. <laughs> I know I want a judgment, but can't you just come and whoop them people that I don't like and then save everybody else and, and just cleanse everything and just make it right? Can't you just come? Can't you make it a little less painful? This is the very thing that I hear God's people saying all the time. Here's how the conversation goes. Uh, boy, this world's wicked, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Boy, I wish God would do something about it. Well, you know, we're under the judgment of God. That's why we're dealing with what we're dealing with. Uh, that's why there's so much unrighteousness that we're under the judgment of God. And typically the conversation stops there. But here's the next question, and Habakkuk is bold enough to ask it. How could God use such wicked men to judge His people? God speaks here of the coming judgment. He talks about its immense extent. He says, verse 5, Behold ye among the heathen in regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Habakkuk was told to tell the people of his day to look at the heathen. The Jews had become as bad as the heathen. So God, who had once chosen the Jewish people, had chosen another people to be the instrument of their punishment. But the Jews would not believe what they were told. Judah stubbornly resisted uh, the Babylonians to the bitter end, and the Jews persecuted Jeremiah for telling them to submit to the Babylonians. You want to understand what the book of Jeremiah is about, you have to understand what God says in Habakkuk 1.5. God has said the Jews are not going to accept this warning, though it has told them. God tells Jeremiah at the very beginning of his ministry the same thing he would later go on <coughs> excuse me, to tell Ezekiel, that you're going to go to these people and you're going to preach to them, but they're not going to listen to what you have to say. They're not going to hear what you have to say. And Jeremiah's entire ministry is really defined by this, this nationalist hostility towards him by the people of Israel because they accuse him, or the people of Judah would be maybe a better way to say it, they accuse him of being a traitor, being treasonous for preaching the Word of God. We're experiencing a lot of the same thing today. You, you can be, and thankfully we're not quite here yet, although given another five, ten years, but there's places in this world that a Christian can be thrown in jail just for reading the King James Bible. Now, I'm not talking about Saudi Arabia. I'm not talking about Pakistan. I'm talking about Western nations that at one time sent out missionaries into the world, places like Britain, places like Ireland, places like Canada, places where the gospel at one time burned brightly. And now today, if a person stands up on a street corner and reads the King James Bible, they can be put in handcuffs and carted off and carried away. In fact, not too long ago, just a few years ago, there was a man uh, that was put in jail because he was reading the King James Bible. He was a street preacher in England and was reading the King James Bible on the corner. And you say, well, he was probably one of them guys who was just getting out there and being rude and ugly. You know, you've seen them. I have too. People that get out there, they've not got the love of Christ, they're not preaching the gospel, but they're just trying to lambast people. He was probably like that, wasn't he, preacher? No. Uh, his text was John 3.16. And that was enough to get him thrown in handcuffs and carried away. I hate to admit this to you. I hate to say it to you, but it's the truth. Uh, this world has never been friendly towards Christ. Nor do we have any reason to believe that it's going to get any friendlier to Christ in the coming days. The fact is, the pride of man will not permit him to see the judgment that's coming. Only when his pride is humbled and he in faith turns to the Word of God can he see clearly what God is doing in this world around him. And Israel, just like many nations today, refused to believe what the Word of God said. So God tells Habakkuk, says, you want to know what I'm going to do? Just look among the heathen. 
Look what I've done to heathen nations that have rebelled against me. And look too at the heathen nations that are rising up. Because from them I'm going to bring forth a nation uh, that will judge you. It's interesting. He says, I will work a work in your days uh, which you will not believe though it be told you. He tells Habakkuk to wonder marvelously. You know, probably at the time of Habakkuk's prophecy, the idea that Babylon could be a threat was ludicrous. For Egypt was the belligerent world power. But it was not Egypt that Judah had to fear. The Lord said it was the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation that would come and would judge them. In verse 6, we see their coming. He says, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. We talked about this last week, and I won't retread this ground, but there were uh, three invasions of Israel by the Babylonians. The first was in, and I, I, I always get all my dates wrong. That's why it's good to look at the notes. But I think it was around 606 B.C. Uh, that there was an invasion that, that took place. Uh, and uh, then in, I think, 598 B.C., there was an invasion that went all the way to the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, probably Nebuchadnezzar would have would have finished that invasion, but his father, Nabopolassar, died and he had to go back to Babylon to make his claim for the throne and to secure it. And uh, then he finally comes back in uh, sometime in the 580s and finishes and carries away the last of the people. But long before this ever happened, God had prophesied it would take place. That they would go across the breadth of the land to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Next, he talks about their character, their personal traits. He says they're terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Um, uh, The Babylonians are a far cry from the Egyptians that uh, Judah had been dealing with. Uh, They were more in keeping with the Assyrian Empire that had just weakened and had just faded into the background of history. Both the Assyrians and the Babylonians were a vicious people with a scorched earth policy. Uh, the Jew, you know, the Egyptians were sort of the the the, the bumbling uh, big guy in the room of the ancient world. They uh, not to say they were not dangerous, but they basically just wanted to sit from Egypt and uh, collect taxes, collect grain, collect things, and pull the strings on the world scene. But the Assyrians and the Babylonians were different. They wanted to come in and decimate a people and replace that people with themselves. In fact, the Samaritans in the New Testament uh, are the product of the Assyrians coming in and destroying the northern kingdom tribes and then intermarrying their people with the Jews that were there and the Samaritans were the product of that. That's why they were looked at with such derision uh, by the Jews in Christ's day. So all of this suggests that these men are wicked men. They are evil men. They are men that love violence for the sake of violence. Boy, if we look at uh, the pressures that are surrounding and surmounting on the people of God today, I think this is a fit description of the hostility that we see around us. A a lust for power, a thirst for violence, and a craving of it for the very sake of violence. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but just suffice it to say, some of the power grabs that have happened in our society of late, they're not going to go away. Because government doesn't give up power. Not willingly. Uh, A lot of the things that exist in society today are power for the sake of power. Being able to control you and what you do and what you wear and where you go and who you associate with. Things that really have nothing to do with anything but the government accruing power unto itself. I hope that there's a way that we as a people can wrestle back that power, but I'm not quite so confident about it. Government will not willingly give it up. Once said about George Washington, you know, he had been president for several terms, uh, and it was said by King George that if uh, George Washington willingly gives up power, he's the greatest leader that has ever existed. And there's only been one time in the history of our country 
when government willingly gave up power. And that was when George Washington resigned from the presidency and said someone else needs to take over. There's been an unbroken pattern from that day to this that when the government gets hold of power, it hangs on to that power. He said, but preacher, there's been times that we've gotten power back. Well, yeah, when we've wrestled it back. But as a nation, government, as an entity, it's just not designed to do that. Uh, it's, it's a hammer and it'll always look for a nail. And we see this sort of violence and this greed and this lust for power and control around us today. Look at their powerful troops in verse 8. It says, Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. This described the military prowess of the Babylonians. The ancient world had never seen anything like them. The Assyrians, by sheer virtue of their, of their bloodthirstiness, were a formidable foe. Uh, the Medo-Persians, by virtue of their mass numbers. Xerxes uh, the Great of Persia would march with two, three million people in an army, and they would steamroll over a people. But the sheer military ability of the Babylonians was something to be shuddered at. Uh, the skill that Nebuchadnezzar had. And by the way, this is the reason that it was such a short-lived empire. Much of its skill and much of its prowess lived in the head of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a brilliant military strategist. And he understood how to wield a military. Whenever weaker men that were his descendants arose to the throne after him, they just didn't have the, uh, the, they didn't have the chops to keep it together the way that Nebuchadnezzar did. But in this day, when they are in their glory, when they are in their power, uh, they are swifter than leopards. They're more fierce than evening wolves. Their horses shall spread themselves. In other words, they have great masses of people and they strategically place them. Their horsemen shall come from far. And they did that very thing. They conquered vast expanses of land and they fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. The rapidity, the speed of their army was a wonder of the ancient world. How do you think it was that Nebuchadnezzar was able to leave the walls of Jerusalem and make it back to uh, to Babylon before his father's throne had been claimed by someone else? All these imply to us that this was a fierce and formidable foe. Habakkuk was invited by God to see with prophetic vision the Chaldeans marching triumphantly over all over his native land. Three successive Judean kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah saw the fulfillment of the prophecy when they witnessed the Babylonian armies advancing victoriously through their land. The Chaldean conquerors who Habakkuk saw were terrible and dreadful, ruled only by self-interest. Their horses were swifter than the leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen flew like eagles. We see their character. We notice their cruelty. It says, They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. Not content to allow people to merely become tributaries and vassals of their kingdom, they would take people captive and bring them back to Babylon. This again was something unusual in the ancient world. There had never been, it was almost like they were gathering the peoples of the whole world to build for themselves a great empire in Babylon, and they did that very thing. Then we notice their conquest. It says, They shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. The Chaldeans would not be interested merely in conquest. They would be destructive. 
They left Jerusalem and the temple behind them in utter desolation. Their captives would be as numerous as the grains of sand. Habakkuk was also told that the Babylonians would scoff at the kings and mock fortified cities that stood in their way as if they were sandcastles. You might remember in the Old Testament that they take Zedekiah, pluck out his eyes, and lead him back as a prize to the land of Babylon. Uh, They were famed for taking uh, defeated kings and putting them in cages and hanging them from the gates of their city uh, just as, as a sign to the rest of the world that they were unconquerable. Sort of reminds you of some of the flexing, some of the hostility that exists today in the hearts of wicked men. Uh, that are willing, and, and again, I'm, man, I'm trying to be careful. I need, I got Bible to preach, but they'll do things just to prove they have the power to do it and you can't do anything about it. Flagrant, open, bold, blatant, defiant. Say, so, preacher, I don't see any of that. Well, go to Washington, D.C. and see 5,000 National Guardsmen and a razor wire fence around our capital. Flexing, showing you don't have the power to change what's happening. Sending out the FBI to root out people, uh, grandmothers and grandfathers that showed up for a rally to ferret them out and call them off in chains and throw them in jail and try them uh, for crimes against the state merely for showing up to support what was the then President of the United States of America. You say, Preacher, you endorse everything that happened that day? I don't even know what happened that day. But I'll tell you this, I know people that were personally there that day, and they're not terrorists, and they're not treasonous, and they're not traitors. I can't endorse everything that happened or everyone that was there that day. But I'll tell you this, a lot of what you're seeing today has nothing to do with securing peace within our borders. It has to do with flexing the fact that there's power, that they're in control, and that there's nothing you or I can do about it. So what are they doing, preacher? You know, they, they, they banned the former president of the United States from every means of, of communicating with the public. What are they doing? They're putting them in a cage. They're hanging them on the walls and proving that there's nothing you or I can do to resist the power of the machine. If they're going to throw me in jail, I might as well have good reason to go, right? They're listening to everything I'm saying. So, But it don't matter. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. But then we notice this. There is a chink in their armor. Notice the sin of the Chaldeans, verse 11. Then shall his mind change... And he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Far from seeing the hand of God in their successes, the Babylonians would attribute their swift and astounding victories to their pagan idols. It would seem obvious to them that their gods were more powerful than the gods of the cities and nations they overthrew. Otherwise, those gods would have helped their devotees fight off the invaders. The Babylonians would apply the same logic to the God of the Hebrews. Do you remember this was an issue uh, in, the, in the national attitude and spirit in Babylon? Uh, twice, Daniel had to remind the king of Babylon exactly who it was he had trespassed against. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, uh, it says that Daniel answered down in uh, verse number 27, uh, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and, uh, and said, The secret which the king hath, uh, demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. Uh, but there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Down in verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. What was Daniel doing? He was saying, You've messed with the real true God. He's not one of your idols. 
He's not one of these other paltry, uh, fake, uh, phony gods that these other nations worship. The God you've messed with is the real God, the God of glory. In Daniel chapter 5, he had to remind the same thing uh, to uh, Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. Now his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought vessels of of his house before thee. Now in thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. Now hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. In other words, it came true exactly like God said. You know the problem that wicked men are going to run into? is that they are not just, uh, uh, they are not just uh, abusing and, and maligning and spoiling weak, powerless people, but they have turned their ire against God's people. And you turn your ire against God's people, you turn your ire against God of heaven. In other words, the same problem that existed in that day is the same problem that exists this day. It's one thing to pick on folks uh, that you view as helpless and incapable of defending themselves. But can I remind you who the God is, who the one is that defends those that can't defend themselves, that helps those that are helpless, that watches over, that neither slumbereth nor sleepeth. It's the God of Israel. It's the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And they mess with Him, and they've messed with the wrong one. God reminds Habakkuk that he's going to use the Chaldeans uh, to judge Israel, but that he then in turn is going to judge the Chaldeans for their sin. That they would be the instrument of God's wrath, but they would go beyond that role and instead offend against the God of heaven. Now, that might be good for some folks, but it wasn't good enough for Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, well, God, I I appreciate that answer, um, but it leads to some other questions. As far as Habakkuk was concerned, God's first answer hadn't been an answer at all. In fact, it only created a new problem that was even more puzzling. Inconsistency on the part of God. How could a holy God use a wicked nation to punish his own special people? Now, in Habakkuk's reply to God, he basically makes a three-fold appeal to the Lord. And he goes to the Lord and gives three reasons why God's answer, uh, for lack of a better term, was not good enough. The first is an appeal to revelation. Look with me at verse number 12. Uh, Habakkuk looks at him and says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? The first is a revelation about the person of God, and he acknowledges two things. One, that God is different from man in his existence. He is eternal. And two, that he is different from man in his essence. He is holy. Now, later on we'll see that Habakkuk had the right answer the whole time. Within this statement back to God, he really has in germ form the answer to the problem that he's struggling with. That God is not bound by our timetable the way that we are. And that God is is immutably holy in everything that he does. God transcends time. 
He's not limited to our narrow view of time. He's not hampered by being locked into the succession of events as they occur. Habakkuk admitted that God's perspective was infinitely wider than his. The truth of God's eternal existence did not perplex him. But the thought that God's essence is holiness seemed to aggravate Habakkuk's problem. The prophet understood that God's holiness called for the punishment of sinful Judah. But he could not understand how a holy God could have dealings with the sinful Chaldeans. Keep in mind that this wasn't simply a national problem to Habakkuk or a theological problem. It was a personal problem. As he cried out, My God, mine Holy One. National and international events were affecting his personal walk with God, and this concerned him greatly. But wrestling with these challenges is the only way for our faith to grow. To avoid tough questions or to settle for half-truths and superficial answers to it, it, it allows us to remain immature. But to face questions honestly and talk them through with the Lord is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. I don't have time to go into all of it, but God and His relationship with time is radically different than yours and mine. You know, there's only one time in the Bible that you'll find the word eternity. Now, you'll find the word eternal a lot, and everlasting, and from everlasting to everlasting, and forever. There's only one time you'll find the word eternity. Now, that's interesting, because to say everlasting is to describe a time period. But to say eternity is to describe for us a concept, a state of existence. And the only time that it's found is in the book of Isaiah. And it says about the Lord that He is the God that inhabiteth eternity. I heard a man say it this way one time, that everything at every moment in every place is in the immediate presence of God. We speak in terms of past, present, and future. But to God there is no past, present, and future. God is the I Am. Meaning everything is ever present. You and I look at this wicked world and we see only a glimpse, only part of the picture. And we cry like Habakkuk does, Lord, how long, how long, how long? But God interacts with this world as a completed entity. To Him, He's not waiting for things to change. He's as present in that moment of reckoning as He is in the moment of our confusion. And so I would say it simply this way. God can't. God does not have the capacity to run late or be in a hurry. He doesn't have the capacity to slow down or to rush ahead. God is ever-present in everything. And things will happen on the timetable that God discloses to mankind. But the sooner we recognize that God is not waiting to judge, God has already judged. We're waiting to catch up. Uh, God has already dealt with all of these things. And I don't want to get too abstract on you. But the sooner you realize that we sit around saying, Lord, why are you waiting so long? That's a misunderstanding of who God is and how God functions. He's not waiting. He has done everything and is doing everything and will do everything at the perfect and appropriate time. Then he makes this statement. He calls God his Holy One. Now, think about this. Uh, God is holy. That's a two-sided coin. What I mean by that is this. There are certain things that God will not permit, right? But that also means there are certain things that God will not neglect. It is true that God will not permit iniquity to run unchecked. But His holiness has another side to it. For every commandment that He gives, there's also a covenant that He takes into reckoning. There's a promise for every precept that He deals with. There's a promise that is associated with it. Within this, Habakkuk finds hope. Because listen to what he says. We shall not die. 
Now what does he mean by that? He does not mean that they're never going to die. You could search the world wide over and you wouldn't find physically Habakkuk walking around in this world today. He's in heaven with God. He met his uh, earthly end, temporal end, just like all men do. It's appointed unto man once to die. So what does he mean when he says, we shall not die? When he says we, he's speaking collectively of the nation of Israel. And he's saying this, this is not the end. God has made promises to Israel as a nation. And though He may use the Babylonians to judge us, He's not going to snuff us out. You know why? Because He's holy. He's holy. Just as His precepts demand that He answer in judgment, His promise demands that He preserve the nation of Israel and preserve His people. Like a lightning flash in His soul, a glimpse of the problem solution came to the prophet as he wrote, We shall not die. He saw that God's dealings with His people were consistent. If God was holy and Habakkuk had just called Him, Mine Holy One, He would not permanently cast off the people with whom He had an irrevocable and unconditional covenant. We shall not die, He exclaimed. No matter what happened, God could not belie His own character. The hope that he finds in the purposes of God is that God's judgment was really consistent. Number two, he recognizes this, that God's judgment was really corrective. He says, We shall not die, O Lord, Thou hast ordained them for judgment, O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. Habakkuk also saw that God's dealing with His people were corrective, not merely punitive. What God had in mind was the correction of His people. Not the obliteration of them, the correction of them through disciplinary action. It's, I've often said this before, whenever God chastens us, we ought to rejoice, because every son whom the Lord uh, loveth, He chasteneth, He scourgeth everyone that is His. Uh, every single one of us that is a child of God, God's not going to allow us to live in unrighteousness without having something to say about it. But He doesn't do that because He hates us, He does that because He loves us. The chastening of God is a reminder that God is not done with us. And likewise, uh, for Habakkuk, he realized God is not done with us as a nation. The most terrifying words in the entire King James Bible are found in the book of Hosea. When God, speaking about His judgment of the northern ten tribes, He said He would be like a lion amongst them. He'd tear them to pieces. He'd be like a moth amongst them that would corrupt and would, would eat them uh, from the inside out. He'd be like a canker that would devour them. And then finally God says, because all that is not work, here's what God says. He says, I will go. He says of Ephraim that she's given to idols, let her alone. In other words, the most terrifying thing that God could do in a person's life is leave them alone. But as God's children, we know He won't leave us alone. So we find in this an appeal to revelation. Number two, we find an appeal to reason. We see a simple declaration of God's character. I know you don't believe this, but we're almost done. That's okay. You don't have to believe it. You'll know when we're done. We see a simple declaration of God's character. Habakkuk says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Now, this is in perfect harmony with God's answer. Habakkuk begins this whole thing by saying, God, why are you making me behold iniquity? And then when we come to verse 13, he says, Lord, you're of purer eyes than to behold evil. You're not going to look on iniquity. And because of that, God was going to judge iniquity in the nation. But then that brings about the next question. We see a simple declaration of God's character. But then we see a seeming denial of God's character. He says, Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Not satisfied with the revelation he had received, the prophet tried to solve his problem with reason. And he rephrased his question. 
He said uh, to the Lord, Thou art of pure eyes, then behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? A simple declaration of God's character, that he is too pure to behold iniquity, is followed by a seeming denial of God's character. He plans to use a vile instrument. How could a holy God contemplate using people as treacherous as the Chaldeans? What fellowship does light have with darkness? Habakkuk's problem refused to go away. He says, Lord, I know this to be true about you. But because I know this to be true, how then can this be true? It's a comfort to me to know that Habakkuk was asking some of the same questions that I ask God sometimes. If if Habakkuk had had the the Christianity of the average Christian today, he would have just ignored it, sat down, and watched Dancing with the Stars. He would have just said, I'm done with it. It's above my pay grade, whatever. Uh, Let's see if Matlock's on. And he would have just, just bailed out and said, whatever. Habakkuk's faith is deeper than that. He could not sleep. He was troubled. He tossed and turned in the crisis that he was experiencing. So he makes a third appeal, and it's an appeal to righteousness. He says in verse number 14, he speaks of the fishing of the foe. He says, you make us men as the fishes of the, uh, fishes of the sea, or they make men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. He's describing the Chaldeans that viewed the harvesting of nations the way a fisherman would pull a drag net and indiscriminately pull in whoever was in that net or whatever fish was in that net. He describes the folly of the foe. He says, Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat is plenteous. This, to me, is one of the most compelling arguments that Habakkuk makes, and God has an answer for it. We'll get to it. But he essentially says, You know what is so galling about this, God, is that the more they succeed, the more wicked they become. Because every time they get away with it, they think they're right in doing it. This is the reason that wickedness in a, in a civilization has an ever-spiraling decline. Because God in His long-sufferingness is loath to pour out judgment. But when that happens, men, believing they've got away with unrighteousness, find it as an endorsement of their wickedness. You know, in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah calls God's judgment His strange work. Meaning, it's not something God likes to do. God's not sitting up in heaven giddy at the prospect of of striking judgment down upon people. He's loath to do it. How could God love the world so much He gave His only begotten Son, but also relish in the destruction? Well, He doesn't relish in the destruction. And so God is long-suffering. You say, what do we do with that, preacher? Well, like Peter said, we're to count the long-suffering of God salvation. In other words, God's being merciful because He still loves mankind. He wants to save them. Instead of getting angry at God and saying, God, why won't you destroy these evil men? We ought to say, God, you must love them and want to save them. So I better pray for them. I better witness to them. I better try to make an influence in their life. The reality is wicked men will often grow worse because they believe they are unchecked in their wickedness. This is exemplified by Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Remember in Daniel chapter 4, the vision is given about the great tree that's cut down. God literally tells Nebuchadnezzar what he's about to do and gives him a a space of grace for him to repent. The Bible says this in verse 28, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months. He walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, and the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom uh, by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. In other words, that same spirit we see. You know, I don't think it's an accident that the spirit of Babylon is identified with the condition of the world during the end times. 
You remember in the book of Revelation, the Bible describes that great world system of the Antichrist as the great whore of Babylon. It's not by accident. If you're in my Sunday school class, you've heard me say this before, that symbolism, if there be no symbolism, why the symbolism? And what I mean by that is when God draws a symbolic connection between two things, that's meaningful. God could have called it the, the great whore of Roman Catholicism, and there's probably some merit there. He, call, he could have called it the great whore of Medo-Persia. He could have called it the great whore of Assyria or Nineveh, but he called it the great whore of Babylon. Why? Because that same spirit of pride, of vaunting itself against God, of the deifying of mankind, of shaking your fist at the God of heaven that existed in ancient Babylon, is coming to mark our end times as well. We're finding the uh, rotten fruit of this ancient tree is blooming, blossoming, and falling all around us. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Mankind is going to get more emboldened in its defiance against God. He says this, verse 17, we see the fishing of the foe and the folly of the foe, but finally we see the fate of the foe. He says, shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nation? He says, God, if you don't do something... We're going to be consumed. You know, the Bible says in time of the Antichrist that were it not for God's mercy, if God didn't restrain it, there'd be none that would be saved. Uh, you mark her down, the devil, if he had his way, he'd kill every one of God's people. And this world system would as well. And it's discouraging sometimes when we look at that. But listen, the prophet needed to remember two facts. One, God had used other tools to chasten his people. War, natural calamities, the preaching of the prophets... And the people wouldn't listen. The greater the light, the greater the responsibility. Yes, the Babylonians were wicked sinners, but they were idolaters who didn't know the true and living God. Now, this didn't excuse their sins, but it did explain their conduct. The Jews claimed to know the Lord, and yet they were sinning against the very law they claimed to believe. Sin in the life of the believer is far worse than sin in the life of an unbeliever. When God's people deliberately disobey Him, they sin against a flood of light and an ocean of love. So, preacher, what's my response supposed to be when I look at the wickedness of the world around us? Well, pity, pity, uh, the, the pain of, of Christ-like compassion to say that could be me, but also self-reflection, self-examination. Uh, you say, preacher, why, why, are, why is this lost world living the way it is? Because it's a lost world. We get awful mad at sinners for behaving like sinners. But you know who really has no excuse to behave like a sinner? A saved child of God. The question was not why didn't God judge Babylon. God would judge Babylon. The greater question was why had God not yet judged Judah. You say, preacher, why hadn't God judged all this wicked, godless world system? Hey, the greater question is why is he being so patient with the church? We have a lot of light and a lot of wisdom and a lot of, of grace that we sin against whenever we walk in disobedience. But then, too, we admire Habakkuk for being an honest man. And wanting God to spare the people he loved. We want to imitate him in his openness and sincerity and his willingness to wait for God's answer. That's a good thing. I admire that. I think it's good to, to search God out and want to understand what he's doing. But we must remember what Paul wrote uh, to the believers in Rome, in Romans chapter number 11. Which, by the way, and this is my last comment, I'll be done. Did you know Romans chapter 11 is about how God wields nations? The Calvinist wants us to believe it's about how some are going to heaven and some are not, and there ain't nothing they can do about it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm going to say that again. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
I'm going to say it a third time. That's not what the Bible teaches. Roman 11 is not about the, the individual soul salvation of the believer. The context of it is what God is doing in Israel as a nation and how God, there is a precedent in the Word of God for God to use unrighteous nations to judge His people. All the individuals in Romans 9, 10, 11 that are mentioned, every one of them, with the exception of one, and that's Rebecca, every other one is the head, federal head of a nation that is mentioned. When it talks about Jacob, when it talks about Esau, when it talks about Pharaoh, every one of them are the federal heads of nations. It's not about individuals, it's about nations. And listen to what Paul finally says after that long discourse. He talks about how God is wielding these nations and how God is bringing about His will. And he breaks out in this doxology of praise and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. And his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. In other words, Paul, in beholding God's wondrous wisdom in dealing with the nations, he finally steps back and he says, You know, sometimes it just amazes me how God is in control. There's going to be times you're not going to have the answer that satisfies you to the questions that you have. There's going to be times that you're going to have to, like Habakkuk, climb up on that watchtower and wait and allow God and His eternal purposes to unfold things. But you know what you'll find? When you've got the bird's eye view like Paul had in Romans 11, you'll step back and say, My soul, how God did everything right. He did it exactly like it ought to be done. He is a trustworthy God.